University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. Today, uh, this ministry that we have been encountering with Jesus is going to take on a new tone. Uh, Jesus is going to go from this isolated person into inviting people to come and follow him. And so we'll encounter two texts, one in Matthew chapter 4 and one in Matthew chapter 9 this morning. And what's fascinating about this invitation of Jesus is it's not the embarkation into this new religion or into some sort of new institution There's no special magical words that we say, no asking Jesus into our heart. Instead, Jesus is inviting people into new life. And it begins with Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. As Jesus was walking along beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew, who were casting nets into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in the boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their fathers and followed him. I'm going to cut this off. It might be my Good Lord. All right. Whew, that always makes for interesting worship, doesn't it? Some biblical scholars have argued that James, John, Peter, and Andrew were in fact followers of John the Baptist. And so maybe they would have had some familiarity with Jesus, who was his cousin. However, it might be more likely that these brothers had heard Jesus as he preached throughout the countryside, performing miracles in Capernaum. And so it's interesting that Jesus then comes and invites them to come and follow him. I love the nature of this text because here are these men who are just going about their day, doing their business, and here comes this man and invites them to come and to follow him. And he gives them this curious commission, I will send you out to fish for people. Now, Luke gives a more interesting nature to this text. Luke tries to tell us in the Gospels that the the men had been fishing all night and had no luck, and Jesus calls out from the shore and tells them to, to cast their nets onto the other side that they might catch fish. But if we remove ourselves from the familiarity of Jesus, and if we're honest, this is a bit odd. It actually sounds kind of crazy when you think about it. Who are they following Where are they following him, and what are they going to follow him to do? Over, have you ever seen this Netflix series? Uh, It's entitled Wild, Wild Country. Over six episodes, viewers are taken back to this interesting and largely forgotten moment in America's history. It tells the tale of this cult following in uh, Antelope, Oregon. And you see, they had plans to have about 10,000 followers in Oregon with this lofty goal of eventually uh, reaching 50,000 residents. And unfortunately for them, the Antelope locals were not too pleased with what they deemed to be this cult living outside of their community. 
And this constitutional battle eventually escalated into full-on war involving guns and bioterrorism and numerous other threats. And it began with this man who was a guru who would go around college campuses and invite highly educated people to learn under his wing, people who were entertaining different thoughts and minds. And soon it spread into this large cult following. You can throw this cult in with the Branch Davidians and the Jonestown of the world. So when we think about Jesus' invitation, think about if this random guy came up to you and was proclaiming this public message in this public square and then invited you to come and follow him. If we're honest, how would we respond? Well, most likely we would probably think this man is a crazy person. We'd be featured as some sort of lunatic on the news. But Luke gives us this interesting perspective that Matthew doesn't, telling us that the men were out fishing all night, and here this man shows up on the shore, says, push back off the shore and cast your nets on the other side. And Simon's response in Luke's gospel is quite fascinating. He gives this really cordial response. Master, we've been out hard work all night, and we've caught nothing. Let me translate that for you. Hey, Jesus, uh, you're a carpenter, right? We are, um, we're fishermen. And we've been out all night fishing, and um, we know what we're doing. We haven't caught a thing. So um, I think if you'll let us stick with the fishing and you stick with the woodworking. Yet to oblige this man that's on the shore, they cast their nets, and Luke says that they had such difficulty pulling them in, they had to bring others to assist them. And what happens next in our lesson is that we learn that Peter falls to his knees and says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Here's a man who makes his living catching and selling fish. He's left with nothing for his long night of work. Yet this simple carpenter from Nazareth tells him to take his boats out to drop the nets, and he stands amazed at what he's just witnessed. But here is where Jesus' invitation starts to take shape. The brothers are recognizing that, that Jesus might know something that they don't. If Jennifer were to come up here, or my parents, or pretty much any of my former teachers would come up here, they would tell you of all the number of times I have been wrong in my life. Not that my loving wife would ever, ever do that. She's smiling in the back. This is coming from the person who had an Andy table. It was the table that Andy sat at so that he wouldn't distract himself and, and others. I'll never forget one of the dumbest things I ever did was when I was in middle school. Like most middle school boys, I was obsessed with setting things on fire and blowing things up. And we somehow got our hands on fireworks. And my parents had told us again and again not to play with fireworks, not to play with matches. They were so worried about us blowing the side of our face off. And so one of my buddies, Mark, and I decided we had this brilliant idea. We were going to go into the manholes of our neighborhood and light cherry bombs. I know it's stupid. That's why I'm telling you this story. And so we got down into the manhole, and my buddy Mark threw one of these cherry bombs, and apparently it hit a rock because it comes flying back at us. We scramble out of the manhole thinking that we have just, you know, avoided death at all costs. And so I walk into the home, you know, nonchalantly thinking I'm going to get away from this. And my parents said, what have you been up to? What do you mean, what have I been up to? And I'll never forget my parents' response. Well, you pretty much smell like the 4th of July. What have you been doing? You see, we had been down in this manhole, and we hadn't thought about the fact that playing with firecrackers in a confined space that you might smell like smoke and 
fire and all sorts of other things. One thing we need to come to see about the invitation of Jesus is that it's recognizing that he is right. Simon is a fisherman who depended daily upon catching fish to provide for his family. When he comes up short, this carpenter happens to be there to to show him a different way. And Simon puts out his nets and he discovers that Jesus is right and he knows what's best for Simon. Simon's story, my story, maybe your story, we discover that we think we know what's best for our lives. For all of us, whether We've made the decision to follow Jesus or not, to play this God game. It's this game we play with God in which we say to God, God, I'm right and you're wrong, okay? I've got this. We want and we think about what's right. We so often want to shape our lives and relationships and politics and ethics and business practices and finances and how people work and sexuality and social problems and culture and religiosity and health and wellness and marriage and love and friend and foe and goals and dreams and religiosity and life trajectory. We, we shape these things because we think we know what is right. But here's what's fascinating about Jesus. Jesus is not in our faces telling us that we are oh so wrong. He's not that bully holding that magnifying glass just waiting to burn up that ant on the sidewalk. You see, Jesus in this moment could have looked at Simon and said, Man, you are an idiot. Can't you just believe when I tell you what is right? But instead, Jesus responds to Simon's wrongness with grace. As the great Henry Nouwen put it, to pray is to walk in full light of God and to say simply without holding back, I am human and you are God. At that moment, conversion occurs, the restoration of true relationship. A human being is not someone who once in a while makes mistakes. And God is not someone who now and then forgives. No, human beings are broken and God is love. You see, Jesus is inviting us to follow him into a a beautiful and vibrant and extraordinary opportunity into a new way of living and thinking. And he's giving us an opportunity to course correct, to to discover a better and fuller and more life-giving path. And then it gets even stranger in chapter 9, verse 9. Read this. It says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told them. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And upon hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. No one likes taxes. In fact, I'm pretty sure that most people that work for the IRS don't even enjoy taxes. And no one in Jesus' day would have loved a tax collector, except for maybe even fellow tax collectors, and I'm pretty sure they didn't even like each other. Matthew didn't just collect required taxes, but he had the authority and threat of Rome on his lips, and so he could have collected a little extra, extra for himself. He was a man who lorded over the people with the threat of Rome, who extorted people for their money, for the government. And he was a man who would have extorted people, especially the poor, for his own gain. Matthew was a despicable man. 
And yet Jesus befriends this man, along with what the author labeled sinners. This could have been prostitutes or adulterers, the town drunk, Sabbath breakers, the guy who broke the law of Moses that said we shouldn't eat crawfish. And yet what we see from Jesus is something different. Yet the Pharisees give us this unique religious experience. You see, the Pharisees are often what I imagine what we think of God, which is that God is this judgmental being that is waiting with bated breath for us to mess up, to get it wrong, to have no idea what we're doing so that God can throw down the religious guillotine, mark us as hell-bound sinners, and wipe us from the face of the earth. But what we see in Jesus is something completely different than the Pharisees. You see, Jesus is constantly standing against the religious accusations and condemnation and determinism. Right here, in the call of Matthew, we see Jesus intentionally surrounding himself with society's so-called outcast, broken, hated, feared, and religious condemned. And out of Jesus' mouth, what we learn is a desire for something wholly different than what the religious experts thought of God. We learn that through Matthew's calling that Jesus' invitation is not of one of religiosity, but compassionate transformation. The extraordinary Philip Yancey framed grace this way, imperfection is the prerequisite for grace. Light only gets through the cracks. Grace, like water, flows to the lowest parts. Here we see Jesus living out his words as he eats alongside public enemy number one, a tax collector. Here we see Jesus inviting individuals into mercy and healing as God's continual grace. This is a fascinating story in the life of Jesus. Here we see God's grace for all people, from a peasant fisherman in Galilee to a despicable man like Matthew, from prostitutes to self-righteous religious zealots, God's grace is inclusive for all people. And Jesus will have an interesting encounter with the Pharisees and the teacher's law. One of the more savory phrases that Jesus uh, utters towards these religious leaders is when he says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will enter into the kingdom of heaven before you. So wait, the invitation of Jesus is to society's greatest enemies and outcasts? And what's up with Jesus inviting working class people and lower class outcasts and revolutionists and Roman sympathizers to follow him? Doesn't Jesus know that if he wants to get this movement really out there, then he needs to get the movers and shakers of the town, the important people with all the influence and the money? But then when you zero in into who Jesus actually invited to follow him, it gets even weirder. In the list of the disciples, we have this man named Simon the Zealot who was a political activist. He was an anarchist who was looking for ways to constantly overthrow Rome with violence. Some scholars have argued that Simon the Zealot would have been a more likely figure to betray Jesus as Jesus began to teach people about peace and pacifism and love. Then there's Judas, son of James. His name is interesting because it comes out of the Greek word labius, which means breast child, or another translation means mama's boy. And so we learn that Jesus is inviting not just these old men and their well off in their careers, but these young men to come and follow him. So let's get this straight. Jesus calls political revolutionists, mama's boys, teenagers, 
men well into their career, women who have been branded prostitutes, lepers, poor people, rich people, public enemies, self-righteous religious, and those marked by sinners from the same group, do you have the invitation of Jesus down pat? I think the answer to our question can best be summed up in the words of Master Yoda. Of course, everything should always relate back to Star Wars. In Star Wars Empire Strikes Back, there's this epic sequence that takes place on the planet Dagobah as young Luke Skywalker has ventured to be trained under Master Yoda. They go deeper and deeper into their training. Yoda brings Luke to a place where his X-Wing has crash-landed into the swamp, and Yoda instructs Luke with the Force to lift the X-Wing out of the swamp and onto dry ground. And Luke replies, it simply cannot be done. It is too big. And so Yoda responds with one of the greatest lines from the movie. Size matters not. Look at me. Judge me by size, do you? That's the only Yoda part I can do. Always with you what cannot be done. You know nothing that I say. You must unlearn what you have learned. You see, I think one of the most fascinating insights we can gain into these two very different call stories from the ministry of Jesus. Think back to Peter and James and John. All four men were well into their careers and their families and their life courses, and yet Jesus comes along and invites them to change all of it. Drop the nets, let go of this work project, cancel what you have on your calendar. Life is starting new today. Jesus essentially says. Look back to the invitation of Matthew. Jesus is inviting Matthew to step away from extorting his neighbors, using the threat of Rome to gain personal interest. He's inviting him into a life transformed. Matthew's calling was also an invitation to these self-righteous religious leaders. Jesus was calling them to move away from their fixed notion of God and how God works. These laws and rules and regulations is not what God desires. Such words are echoed from the prophet Isaiah when he challenged the people to say, sacrifices and tithes and worship is not what God desires. When our hands are full of corruption and injustice and apathy and indifference towards our neighbor. You see, the invitation of Jesus is to unlearn what we have learned. For some in this space, This is the first time you've heard the invitation of Jesus. And for others, you've been doing this Jesus thing for a very long time. Whatever the case may be, Jesus' invitation is the ongoing process of unlearning what we have learned about life and goals and dreams and ethics and politics and economics and friend and enemy and marriage and business and the treatment of other people and life trajectory and goals and dreams and religion. Jesus' invitation is to continually reshape how we see God and how God works in the world and the way God desires for us to live, the way that we ought to treat our neighbors and our enemies, how we shape our priorities, how we use our money and our time. This is unlearning everything so that we can discover everything. But are we willing to budge? Are we willing to change? Are we willing to be transformed by Jesus? And yet, I think of the most challenging aspects of this text is brings into reality our inability to move, 
to change, to be transformed. Usually this is a result of being set in our ways or being too wise or too successful or too broken or too self-righteous or too entrenched. This happens when we find success in life and work and education and social circles and other forms of well-being. In other words, we think that we have arrived as a result of our age or our career success or education or our world experiences or relationship status or our financial well-being. And too often we're not keen to changing our mind on such things. And yet the invitation of Jesus is to change our way of thinking and living. That's what the word repent means. The literal translation is to change your way of thinking and living. And this is not a solitary act at the inception we choose to follow Jesus for the first time, but an ongoing continual process of changing our minds so that Jesus can inform us of a new way of thinking and a new way of living. So what happens when the invitation of Jesus to leave our nets of success and comfort is extended? What happens when we begin to follow Jesus and his ways and teaching go toe-to-toe with what we thought was right and true in this world? What happens when the people that Jesus surround himself with aren't the kind of people we want, namely tax collectors and prostitutes and even those really annoying self-righteous religious leaders? What happens when we, with what we want, whether that be emotionally or socially or politically or ethically or physically or financially or relationally, clashes against what Jesus says is best. Are we like the Pharisees to think that we know God and what God wants when God is staring us right in the face, we choose to stick with our wisdom and our religion? As one person put it, those who never retract their opinion love themselves more than they love truth. When I think of the last 20 years of ministry, I can think of moments when I thought I had it right and I was oh so wrong. I grew up in a church tradition that didn't allow women to be deacons. It would have been laughable to think that a woman could be a senior pastor. So what do you think happened in my first year in the philosophy and religion department at Campbell University when I encountered people who were sensing a call? The more entrenched I got, the more I encountered Bible verse after Bible verse that showed how much women were at the forefront of Jesus' ministry, including delivering the greatest sermon the world ever heard. He is not dead. He is risen. God began to move and work through the scriptures as I learned that there is this thing called context when interpreting the Bible. And then God opened my ears to hear the stories of my colleagues who were sensing a call. At the age of 15, when I began to preach, I I became quickly unsettled with the message of, of this weird evangelical upbringing I have, namely that the purpose of Jesus was to come to earth so that I could ask him into my heart in this personal salvation experience alone, so that one day, as long as I didn't veer off the right path, then I would encounter God and his glory in heaven. Except I started to read the scriptures that I was preaching on, and I didn't see the message at all, because Jesus never once told me to ask him into his heart. Instead, Jesus invites people to follow him into new life, a new way of living. And I saw Jesus breaking down religious and social barriers, eating meals with so-called sinners and outcasts. I saw Jesus was just as much loving his neighbor and enemy 
as he was loving God. In fact, the two can't be separated. I grew up in a very clear picture of the church. You better be your best, dress your best, and leave your messed up, broken life at home because God's not interested in sinners and screw-ups coming to worship. Condemnation and judgment were the entry fee to be in part of the church. And then I encountered Jesus of Nazareth of the Gospels, the one who welcomed sinners and men like Matthew. The same Jesus seemed to stand against or between the self-righteous religious system that demanded for perfection and the object of their fiery wrath, the prostitutes, the Sabbath breakers, and the ritualistically impure. And so I came to see the radical inclusiveness of God's love. May we come to see that the invitation of Jesus, that we are never too old or too young, too wise or foolish, too successful or too much of a failure, too broken or too self-righteous or too entrenched to become something or someone new. May we come to see that Jesus is inviting us to step out in faith, to be transformed and led by him into a new way of thinking and living. Or as the great Brennan Manning put it, the gospel is absurd and the life of Jesus is meaningless unless we believe that he lived and died and rose again with what one purpose in mind, to make us a brand new creation.